want the Republicans to wake up is... The Republican Party right now is not led by conservatives. There's a population out there that has to be told the truth. Uh, we have to. Do it live! Now, from the left coast, it's another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Peter B. is curious, opinionated, and relentless in pursuit of the truth like a honeybee drawn to pollen. He's an independent progressive, ready to sting Republicans and Democrats alike when they deserve it. After years in commercial radio, Peter B. welcomes you to this audio adventure in news and politics with no corporate filter. Listeners support this program, and you can help at PeterBCollins.com. Here's your humble host, Peter B. Welcome to a fresh edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. As your pronouncer mentioned, this program is supported by listeners, and we name names. Nancy Kilgore, Michael McMillan, John DeVries, and Grant Gibson, all voluntary subscribers supporting this program. And if you're so inclined, you can do it too. Just drop by my website at peterbcollins.com. On the right-hand side, click on the tab that says, You Can Help. Our voluntary subscriptions start as low as five bucks a month. And coming up later in this podcast, we're going to talk about two towns in Massachusetts that have offered to adopt two individuals who've been held without charge at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, ordered released by a federal court under a habeas corpus ruling. Nancy Tulanian will join us in just a few minutes. But first, we want to take a look at the ongoing struggle in Afghanistan, the continuing U.S. occupation. This week, we saw a visit to Washington by Hamid Karzai, the puppet leader of the government in Kabul, propped up uh, by the United States, handpicked by him. And uh, we saw some interesting developments as General Stanley McChrystal came and gave some interviews to say that, uh, well, his characterization on the PBS NewsHour is that things have shifted. In the last six months, maybe eight months from August, when he floated the proposal for more U.S. troops, he says we're now roughly in a draw, and that back in August we were losing. I find it hard to document either claim. But the spin appears to be working for the Obama administration. Yet at the same time, we have expanded the use of drone attacks particularly in Pakistan. There's great concern that not only are we often uh, killing more civilians than targeted terrorists, but as we'll point out in a moment, the ratio appears to be 50 to 1 of civilians killed as opposed to the targeted individuals. Paul Fitzgerald and Elizabeth Gould are a husband and wife reporting team And they've been covering Afghanistan for quite a while, going back to 1981 when they uh, reported there for CBS News and later for the public broadcasting system. 
They're the authors of uh, Our Own Private Bin Laden. Oh, I'm sorry, that's a documentary film that uh, they appeared in recently. Um, Their book is called Invisible History, Afghanistan's Untold Story, and uh, they have a book coming out next year called Crossing Zero, The AFPAC War at the Turning Point of American Empire. They previously appeared with me and Sabelle Edmonds on an episode of the Boiling Frogs interview series. And Paul Fitzgerald joins us on this program today. Hello, Paul. Hello, Peter. Good to great, talk with you again. Great to be back. Well, uh, there's a lot going on, and I wanted to get your thoughts. And uh, first, I want to point out that you and uh, Liz Gould published a piece that is now available at Sabelle Edmonds' website, BoilingFrogsPost.com. And in it, you raise important questions about the use of these remote-controlled drone attacks and uh, argue that they are largely counterproductive. Uh, Why don't you summarize the piece, and we'll converse about it. Well, we wanted to get out the idea that the whole uh, use of predator drones uh, is fundamentally working against uh, uh, long-term American interests. And it's, of course, uh, you know, the question of, there's a lot of questions about whether they're even legal or not. I mean, apparently there's a, a wink and a nudge going on between uh, Pakistan and the United States over killing terrorist suspects, uh, uh, whatever, under, under whatever circumstances. And uh, Pakistan protests publicly, but silently they're actually doing it, and the United States is supplying them with information, Pakistani intelligence. Which is an entire, you know, that that's a a, a, a whole kettle of of uh, dangerous stuff right there. You've got all kinds of issues going on in Pakistan regarding the ethnicities, uh, various ethnic groupings there in Baluchistan and Sindh. You have independence movements there, uh, uh, independence people, people who are moderates are being targeted. At, by certain people in the ISI as being troublemakers for mm-hmm. Pakistan's military. And uh, we have heard that, you know, the United States is going along with that and targeting some of these people. And uh, you see, so one of the reasons why uh, the Obama administration appears to be uh, uh, preferring assassination techniques to actually capture, snatch, so-called snatch and grabs, bringing these people in and then interrogating them and maybe perhaps even putting them on trial, uh, is because there's a lot of embarrassing things here. There's a lot of policy that really has to get dealt with, and nobody seems to uh, want to deal with that. We seem to have, um, over the last 30 years, developed a kind of Swiss cheese government, where so much of, of uh, what the government used to do has been privatized, and and uh, nobody's really accountable for, mm-hmm. for what's happening. So uh, Andrew Exum has got a new piece out that just came out a few days ago, and uh, and he uh, he's a terrorism expert, and uh, he's he's stated pretty much that the United States doesn't really have right now, uh, even after this amount of time with the Obama administration, a political plan for what's going on in Afghanistan. We have a military plan. We have tactics. We've got all kinds of high technology weapons that are being used, and uh, the, the predator drone thing is being advanced uh, all the time. But we don't really have a political agenda uh, for what's happening there, and, and that's a serious problem. So the issue comes back with this, this recent event that we had in, the, uh, in New York with the, uh, the uh, almost bombing in Times Square. Mm-hmm. is a very good indication that 
the Taliban are really in this in this 21st century. Uh, the Taliban is quite capable of retaliating, and these people have been motivated by this. And people have been warning against uh, experts have been warning for years that uh, that this sort of thing was uh, producing more terrorists than it was eliminating. Uh, you know, these are these guys don't look like hardcore people. They've arrested two more people in Boston uh, yesterday right. uh, in the Boston area. Yeah, and. Uh, these don't look like hardcore terrorists. I mean, what they're doing is they're inflaming uh, Pashtun nationalism on the on the Pakistani side of the border, <clears throat> and they're they're inflaming Pakistani nationalists who want to somehow strike back at this invasion of their territory and this uh, ex- these executions without trial. So you you know we've got a whole kettle of fish that that is 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 uh, you know put on the stove to boil here, and nobody seems to be watching the pot. Well, and uh, it's interesting because, Paul, uh, David Sirota published a column today on the 14th of May, uh, also citing Kilcullen and Exum. And uh, he quotes, Press reports suggest that over the last three years, drone strikes have killed about 14 terrorist leaders. Hmm. But according to Pakistani sources, they've also killed some 700 civilians. This is 50 to 1. And, you know, you can't win hearts and minds. You can't win the public relations uh, uh, war, if that's what we want to call it, uh, when these kinds of numbers are producing, and and if we just uh, uh, work off uh, generalizations here, if, uh, you know, 50 people are lost and their brothers and sisters and other family members are angered by this kind of uh, gratuitous and unaccountable uh, loss of life, then how many of those people will be radicalized? And we can uh, make fun of Shazad and the fact that uh, he really apparently flunked the bomb-making training course that he took, but it does represent a serious shift. We were uh, fairly comfortable in the assumption that the Pakistani Taliban and its loosely linked Taliban groups in Afghanistan were focused on uh, domestic or at least regional objectives, but didn't have the interest or the wherewithal to try to bring uh, attacks to the United States. And as bungled as the Times Square event uh, clearly was, it shows that they now have the interest, the inclination, and a desire to strike in the United States and it does appear that this is directly linked to the way that we have been waging this war in Afghanistan and particularly without any uh, uh, legitimacy in Pakistan. You know, there really does seem to be, uh, and, and this, is a, <clears throat> this is specifically a Washington issue and a think tank issue, there does seem to be uh, an inability to move from this kind of Cold War 1947-1948 thinking that uh, that something has profoundly changed. I mean, we, if you look back at the end of the Cold War, as, as an example, you know, the institution, the Beltway, didn't see the Cold War ending. They saw the Soviet Union going on forever. And then, of course, when they collapsed, what did they proceed to do? They proceeded to do nothing. They proceeded to do. They proceeded to, to act towards Russia as if the Cold War was still in effect. So. 
if you look back to the 19th century and you can see that, you know, we have a policy that was implemented by the British in that part of the world in the late 19th century. And uh, Halford McKinder, the whole concept of geopolitics, of controlling uh, Central Asia, that was the goal of this policy that came out of Britain. And the United States inherited that policy at the end of World War II. And so you've got this very rigid thinking that goes on. It's almost like, uh, it's almost like what we used to think of as, uh, you know, the forbidden city. In fact, we've used that on a couple of occasions as a metaphor to describe the thinking in Washington. You've got a bunch of mandarins running around who are basically very upset at the fact that nobody is playing their game the way it used to be played. And uh, this is very, you know, this is once again, I mean, the underwear bomber at Christmas, I mean, it, it takes on an absurd aspect to it because it's so obvious. I mean, it's obvious to you, it's obvious to me, and anybody who's actually observing the situation, here they are basically uh, in the Transport uh, Security Administration uh, is, 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 uh, is, is uh, putting, you know, X-raying 92-year-old blue-haired uh, grandmothers going into the airport, and these people are basically walking free amongst us, and, and uh, you know, they're, they're not cross-referencing things. The bureaucracy is so, so aged and so uh, sclerotic at this point that uh, we're not seeing the things that need to be done, and <clears throat> I'm not so sure that they can do it. I, I think that that's what's so great about your whole concept of, uh, you know, progressive politics. I mean, it's, it's, it's not the so-called old left or the old right. It's, it's just the old way of thinking, and it's, uh, it's over. Yeah. And, and Paul, I feel that um, while information is available in the United States, that people uh, are either worn out or tuned out politically. But we have seen the evidence of this uh, response to our drone attacks uh, very graphically. And, and I want to refer to, I believe it was December 29 of last year, the suicide bomber in Coast. And this was, I believe, a Jordanian who was thought to have flipped uh, or been flipped uh, to support the U.S. and its allies. And uh, he strapped on a bomb and was taken into the inner circle of our base there at Coast. Uh, a number of CIA operatives, including a, a female, uh, were killed, uh, along with a, a couple of military contractors. And uh, while this was reported in the United States, the context of it as a response, in particular to the tactics we've been using, appears to have been lost. Also, the arrogance that we thought that we could take a, a medical doctor who had been radicalized by uh, offering free medical care to Palestinians, uh, and we thought that by putting him uh, in prison and maybe some torture was applied, I have no information on that, but suddenly he decides to, he says, work for us, and then uh, embeds himself in a way uh, that he was, he was coming to a meeting where he was supposed to infiltrate the higher ranks of the Taliban and or al-Qaeda and knock off their leaders. And to me, this exposes um, the weakness and, uh, in some cases, the idiocy mm -hmm. of, of the efforts that we have underway and the confidence we have that they're going to prevail. Well, you know, the United States used to be able to, uh, during the Cold War, was able to justify all kinds of spending for all kinds of things because there was an unlimited budget, okay, against the Soviet Union. All they had to do was just go before Congress and say, we need money for spy satellites or we need money for whatever, a new submarine fleet, whatever, and they'd eventually get what they, what they were asking for. They never really had to prove that it worked or prove that they needed it. That was the beauty of the Cold War, you know. They, those missiles just sat 
that in underground silos. They never really got to fire them to see if they actually worked or how many of them really worked. And that's what's going on with the techniques now. Now what happens is, is that they actually have to take their theories, they have to take these guys from the think tanks that have spent their lives developing some of these very expensive techniques and, and all these various ways of dealing with uh, th situations like Afghanistan with al-Qaeda and the Taliban, and actually put them into practice. And you can see that there's actually no reality associated with it. And I mean that. I mean, there's no reality associated with it. Uh, Tom Johnson at the Naval uh, Postgraduate School in Monterey wrote a piece um, in the uh, in Foreign Foreign Policy magazine, or Foreign Affairs, a couple of months ago, about the the Alice in Wonderland nature of it. Now he's gone over there. He's he's tried to implement. He's an anthropologist, and he's one of these anthropologists who's gone in and worked with Afghan tribal leaders and whatnot. And uh, he's he's looked at the situation. He's saying, you know, that the entire institution of the United States in dealing with this, from the CIA to the to, the, to McChrystal's people, are clueless in terms of what needs to be done. And uh, you know, and the fact is, is that this is a real problem now. Okay, during the Cold War, we were all kind of anesthetized by this, by this architecture of, uh, you know, uh, if we use them, it was almost a paralysis. If we use our weapons, they'll use ours. Mutual assured destruction, and. Uh, I think everybody got lulled into a sense of a kind of Walt Disneyfication of what war was really like. And we went off and, of course, we fought in Vietnam, and, and uh, you know, and, and they were supposed to be, the military was supposed to be learning the lessons, and the CIA was supposed to be learning the lessons over the last 30 years of what happened in, uh, to their establishment, to their institution uh, during Vietnam. And, and guess what? It, it, you know, they haven't learned anything. They're going back and repeating the same mistakes. And not only that, but they're also repeating the same mistakes that the Russians made. The Russians have commented on this on many occasions in the last few years. They yeah. said, you know, you're not only making the mistakes that we made, you're making your own mistakes, a whole new layer of them. So. Well, I found deep irony in the visit that Obama made to uh, Russia uh, in January of this year, where the big story was uh, an agreement uh, that has proceeded on nuclear arms uh, uh, arsenal reductions. But the second story that surfaced there was that Medvedev granted permission for U.S. Uh, planes to overfly Russian airspace to resupply our forces in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And I find that richly uh, ironic in so many ways. Uh, Medvedev saying, well, sure, we'll get out of your way as you go to our boneyard. Yeah. Well, you know, it, the, the ironies abound in this particular situation. I mean, there is a reason why <clears throat> they call Afghanistan the graveyard of empires, and that's uh, it's because it's a, it's a very special problem. It's a very complicated problem, and it can't be won militarily. And I think that, you know, Washington even understands that. That's why granting McChrystal 30,000 troops instead of 40,000 or 50,000 when he'd actually need somewhere in the vicinity of 800,000 troops. Yeah. Okay. I, I mean, that's what the numbers were at the time. Mm -hmm. That was just a compromise. That was just to, that was just to appease the Washington bureaucracy and the various, uh, you know, the various people that needed to be appeased. But uh, certainly, that it, it's, it's simply not going to work. And, and, and the problem is, is that, as Exum is pointing out in this latest piece, is that, um, uh, you know, it, that you're not going to get any kind of resolution out of this situation with a military solution, but the politics seems to be all over the place. The, the politicians in Washington have literally um, allowed the military to set the agenda, and there is no political strategy for what happens. Mm -hmm. So what you've got is you've got this kind of feud, this kind of very low-level feud going on between Karzai and Obama, 
which has become very personal. Joe Biden goes over there every so often and apparently storms out in a, in a, in a huff from the presidential palace. And, uh, and, and you've got Karzai, who's basically got a, a, a relationship of convenience with Obama at this point. They both, it's a bad relationship, it's like a bad marriage, but neither one of them can get out of it. Mm-hmm. Now, what's very possible is, is that this, this big offensive that uh, McChrystal is proposing for the Helmand province, uh, which is the, the heartland of the Taliban, and it's also uh, Hamid Karzai's hometown, uh, that could be the that could be the straw that breaks this this whole thing wide open, because uh, the offensive in Marja, which took place uh, a couple of months ago, that was supposed to be you know that was supposed to be the the example of what was going to happen in Helmand Province when they went in there with their full surge uh, in August of uh, of this summer, and um, that's not working out at all. Apparently, there are areas, and it's just recently come out that there are areas that they that they uh, were supposed to have pacified in Marja, uh, and and they did not succeed. They still haven't been able to set up any kind of government there. They had this thing called uh, the government in a box. Yeah, apparently the, the box. About. UPS has refused to deliver the box. Apparently. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, the, the 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 box I think is more like a jack in the box is what it is uh, mm-hmm. you know it's, it was McChrystal's little happy meal that he was giving over to uh, you know to the Afghans uh, with this kind and, you know and it's all propaganda I mean this is just it and the fact is is that the Americans have come to believe the propaganda the American military is coming to believe their own propaganda yeah. and this is very dangerous when you know when institutions start to believe that because all of a sudden you'll get some kind of you know what what happened in Vietnam as an example Tet Offensive you know the military believed that it was actually doing what it said it was doing, and then all of a sudden, you know, they've got this enormous, the country rises up against it and on, on, in one fell swoop and, and uh, just takes the bottom out, out of, out of the whole enterprise. Mm-hmm. And that is a tendency, and more so now than ever, more so even now than in Vietnam. In Vietnam, you actually had, you know, unembedded reporters who were actually going in and talking about things like Malay and these various other campaigns that, you know, the things that the U.S. was doing. And, and that's being strongly discouraged. Uh, I understand that even last year that the Obama administration hired Benador Associates, the famous Benador Associates, which had had helped uh, to fabricate the reasons for the Iraq War. They'd hired them to go in and and to... uh, uh, to basically uh, approve reporters that were going to be embedded with U.S. forces. Mm. And at the same time, so here you've got this, this propaganda machine, essentially, this public relations firm who's gone in to basically vet people to make sure that they, that they put out a good story, that the story that the military wants and that the administration wants. On the other hand, you've got the military complaining, the head of uh, NATO intelligence complaining, uh, an American, uh, at the same time, that the only intelligence that they can actually rely on is that, that, and the intelligence that's coming from the reporters who are actually going out in the field. But at the same time, they're preventing the reporters from going out in the field and discouraging them and embedding them. So, you know, you have a vicious circle here that simply is just is 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 going to, at some point in the very near future, uh, just grind to a halt. Yeah. Paul, I want to get your reaction to some of the comments from General McChrystal. I referenced that he appeared on the PBS NewsHour on uh, Thursday night. That was the 13th of May. And uh, he was asked by uh, Jeffrey Brown about the Graveyard of Empires uh, uh, label for Afghanistan, and he just Mm -hmm. bullshitted his way through that question. But the notable part was that Brown asked him, excuse me, uh, about Karzai's efforts to develop some sort of peace talks or 
some, you know, uh, mechanism to communicate with uh, leaders of the Afghan and Pakistan Taliban's. Right. And McChrystal gave a, what was a carefully rehearsed answer about how he's open to, you know, all kinds of discussions, that it's going to be a political settlement, not a military settlement. But this contradicts the behavior of the U.S. government, and in particular, that we permitted uh, our so-called allies in Pakistan to detain Barader uh, earlier this year when he had back-channel discussions underway with Karzai. Now, I don't think either you and I have any illusions about Hamid Karzai and, uh, you know, what his uh, effectiveness might be as leader of Afghanistan, but... If he is indeed trying, in a good-faith manner, to develop some sort of rapport or rapprochement, and we undercut that by allowing the Pakistanis, or maybe even uh, uh, working with them, to detain Baradar, then uh, we're not really interested in any kind of a brokered settlement at this point. We seem committed to what appears to be a pointless uh, military expansion. And with, uh, as you referenced, the effort to retake and control Kandahar that is widely publicized, uh, I think we're going to see just a repeat of these public relations efforts that have no real uh, meaning or value in the long-term effort to extricate American troops from Afghanistan. I agree with you, and I really think that that it's going to continue until essentially the money runs out. As I said before, I mean, you know, we, we always had in this country, you know, this kind of unending uh, support for the U.S. military. You know, there was an unending budget. If they, we, we've got a lot of defense plants here in Massachusetts. You know, we still rate the on as the, is the uh, single largest employer here. You know, the Predator, the Predator drones come out of uh, MITRE Corporation. Uh, they're here as well. So uh, you've got a lot of that incentive here. So here's a, what you think of as a, they used to refer to it in Massachusetts as the People's Republic of Massachusetts. But a big part of it is, is tied into this whole idea of the military-industrial complex. We've got a big engine program here, a jet engine program for the F-22, uh, then alternative engine program at General Electric, as an example. And that's something that the military said is not necessary. We don't need a second engine option for a, an airplane a very expensive airplane. But it, it, it's one of those uh, pet projects that everybody, regardless of whether they think that we ought to have troops in Afghanistan or not, gets behind, and because it's good for the local economy. So until the ability to write the check for those kinds of things. Now, we know how many, what the deficit is in the United States. We know that you know social programs are going to start getting cut back. The only thing that isn't getting cut back that Obama has talked about is this military budget. So you know, how long can the United States, McChrystal's got until July 2011 to show some kind of results. You know full well what's going to happen. Peter, he's going to he's going to wind up uh, he's going to wind up coming up with some you know uh, some public relations uh, gambit that mm-hmm. will indicate that things are working very well. I mean that was the whole issue with the uh, with the situation with the surge. I mean with the surge from Iraq as an example. A lot of people questioned what that surge was actually about, whether it really had been successful. And uh, that was what the surge in Afghanistan was all based on. Right. We were down in Washington back in uh, 
October of last year, right before the certain de- the decision was made about whether the, whether he was going to get his troops or not. And we were told point blank by a couple of congressmen that it wasn't an issue. They said the the the, the military is is running the agenda. They decide uh, they decide what they need, how much they need, and uh, they basically tell Congress uh, what to do. There is no other way. The co- one congressman told us, he says, I went to Afghanistan. I wanted to talk to some Afghan military people. He said there was a U.S. guy, a U.S. military officer, standing right next to him the entire time that I was speaking with him. And he said he was under pressure. He could not tell me the truth about what was really going on there. So, you know, the U.S. military is, is based pretty much running the agenda. They've been given political a caveat until in the next um, uh, uh, un- until next uh, uh, July, July 11th, uh, the July of 2011. Mm-hmm. And, and that's going to be, you know, and, and we'll see what happens then. But uh, as I said, you know, uh, we can't, I, I think this is, this is the system, it's the way it works, and uh, I just keep wondering how long the, the Chinese and the Japanese uh, and the Saudis are going to keep, um, you know, uh, keep financing our debt. Yeah. Now, Paul, you just teed me up for the next area I wanted to explore with you, and that is the comments of of, uh, Seymour Hersh in a recent speech where he describes Obama as severely captive to the military leadership. And I would submit that uh, the retention of uh, Secretary of Defense Gates is a key element of that. Uh, I don't respect Gates. So going back to the o- October surprise, uh, the exaggerated claims in the 80s of uh, the Soviet Union's military capabilities and therefore the response required from the U.S., the politicization of intelligence uh, at the CIA, that's why he was not confirmed as CIA director under Poppy Bush. And so uh, I really lay much of this uh, at at the feet of Robert Gates and the confidence that Obama seems to have in him. Uh, but what is what is your take on the extent to which Obama is uh, excessively uh, uh, submitting to the wisdom of the Pentagon? Well, I don't really think that uh, the president has much choice. I mean, if you look back in history, you know, the only president who who uh, probably opposed uh, the the efforts uh, following uh, uh, Dwight Eisenhower was was Jack Kennedy, mm-hmm. and he made some very very specific comments. And you know, and what's interesting is is that uh, you know it, I remember for years, you know, you'd get these people who were members of the of the cabinet, and you know, during the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis and the Bay of Pigs and that, and they would come out and they'd come out and they'd say, well, you know, these these, these files are still secret. But all I can say is is that Jack Kennedy and Robert Kennedy were very aggressive in terms of the way they they really wanted to go after Fidel Castro. They wanted him assassinated, and they, you know, they wanted a military escalation towards him. And of course, when the tapes were finally revealed, uh, the White House tapes of of these events um, to historians, it was the other way around. It was his his cabinet were very aggressive. Uh, I think Paul Nitza at one point, who was uh, the uh, undersecretary of the Navy, suggested that he, uh, you know, that they use nuclear weapons, uh, you know, with a, on a on a first kind of first strike. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, these were the kinds. And it turns out that both Jack Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy were actually counseling for, you know, to to to, to tamp the situation down, to keep it from from becoming, uh, you know, from getting out of hand and going nuclear. So it was actually the reverse of the way it said. And of course, we know what happened to Jack Kennedy. Um, in terms of his um, 
in terms of his uh, his proposals for Vietnam or whatever. That's a very misty, dark period of time that we don't really, you know, that we don't really know the real story about what happened during then. Mm-hmm. But you cannot uh, really oppose the military establishment. There's been a lot of stuff written about this over the years, but if you go back, uh, I just read a book. Uh, it was the uh, the biography of, of Henry Wallace, who was Roosevelt's vice president, and he talked a lot. During, in the book, uh, there were a lot of things in the book about him that talked about the uh, the efforts that he saw going on during World War II, 1943, 1944, to create the, what we what came to be the military-industrial complex. And he wanted to go. He wanted to take the U.S. government in a completely different direction. And uh, partly with the influence of Winston Churchill on Roosevelt, a lot of those things didn't happen. And, of course, we got the Cold War after that and, uh, and locked into that for, you know. And once these institutions become, uh, in, once they're invented, we seem to have to live with them, regardless of the reality that surrounds it. And that's where we're, that's where we're living right now. So was there some sort of explicit conversation with Obama during the transition or at a first cabinet meeting in January of 2009 where he was told, sure, you can lift the ban on gays on the military, but uh, don't mess with uh, our yeah. plans for ongoing uh, endless wars in, uh, in Afghanistan and Pakistan? Well, you know, these things are drawn up a long time ahead. As, as you probably recall, Peter, there was the, uh, the 1992 defense guidance, as an example, that was put together by Zalmay Halizad and, and, and uh, uh, Paul Wolfowitz. And uh, that was what was, it was rejected at the time as being, you know, far too aggressive. That was the, that was the uh, defense guidance that basically proposed that the United States should have uh, full-spectrum dominance around the world, that we would be able to eliminate any potential rival uh, on a preemptory basis uh, whenever and wherever we chose. Now, that was, of course, rejected by the first Bush administration. They said, oh, this is outrageous. We certainly don't want to do any of that kind of thing. But came 9-11, that's what got implemented. That was the, that was the policy, the American policy of this global expansion, military expansion. And it's like the Patriot Act. It was already written prior to 9-11. All we needed was the trigger for that to be implemented, and then suddenly we've got this set of draconian rules that, that Congress doesn't even bother to read. So I think that, you know, we're so far down the track in terms of that kind of involvement in our, uh, in our government and in our public affairs that we're not, we're not aware of it, okay? And, and as individuals in our democracy, I mean, we have at least a, you know, a kind of uh, 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 an active, we, we think we're involved in, a, in, in politics. We elect officials, we... Uh, you know, uh, it's a proce- we have a procedural involvement that seems to involve us. But in terms of foreign affairs, those things are, uh, I mean, nobody elected Henry Kissinger. Nobody elected Zbigniew Brzezinski. Uh, nobody elected Richard Holbrook to go in and, and run this AFPAC policy. Uh, so, you know, you've got legacies going on here from generation to generation of people who go back into the, you know, from the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, the protégés of protégés of protégés, who are, of course, uh, advising Obama in terms of where to go with this, the institutions. And I think those are embedded in the system. I think those are hardwired into the American structure. And uh, there has been nothing since uh, before World War II that has been able to alter them from their basic course. And uh, as I said, that I think the financial crisis right now, that's why we're, one of the reasons we're calling the book Crossing Zero, the new book is Crossing Zero, is that we have kind of reached the point where we are, the United States, by, by we, we are facing ourselves 
We're facing our own objectives in the graveyard of empires. We are crossing over a boundary that was crossed over by Alexander the Great, that was crossed over by the British, that was crossed by the Russians. And so we're, we're entering a kind of new realm for the United States. And um, we really have uh, a lot to account for, and I don't think our establishment is really up to uh, to doing that right now. I'd mm-hmm. like to call your attention to something um, in terms of what the strategy is. There was a piece that was put out by a man named Nathan Freer in November 2008, and I would recommend that you and, and your audience actually check this out, because it's, it's a rather scary document. It's called Known Unknowns, Unconventional Strategic Shocks in Defense Strategy Development. Uh, you can visit it at the website of the www.strategicstudiesinstitute.army.mil. It's a, uh, an unclassified um, document. It's a fairly long document, but it, it deals with the fact that we are reaching a profound shift in the way uh, the United States is dealing with the world. Let me, I'll, let me qu- read this to you. This is a quote from the document. Page 34, imagine a new era of containment with the United States as the nation to be contained, where the principal tools and methods of war involve everything but those associated with traditional military conflict. Imagine that the sources of this new era of containment are widespread, predicated on non-military forms of political, economic, and violent action in the main sustainable over time, and finally, largely invulnerable to effective reversal through traditional U.S. advantages. In the extreme, it could drive U.S. decision-makers into increasingly desperate and potentially illegitimate counteraction. Employment of U.S. military power would hold little promise for reversing adverse political and economic conditions. Further, the overt use of military force by the United States would largely be viewed as illegitimate, redress of competitive success in non-military domains. This is a kind of um, a profound document. Uh, it comes out of the Army. It comes out of an Army think tank. Uh, and they're basically admitting that we have crossed zero in terms of the effectiveness of our post-World War II military industrial capacity to get people to do what the United States wants by putting a base there, a naval base there, or a, a, an Air Force base there, mm-hmm. or flying predator drones overhead. So I, I'm getting the sense what's happening right now with the Obama administration is there, there is kind of a desperation uh, to prove that, there, that we can have a technological solution to our problems. And that's what you're seeing uh, in Afghanistan right now, and that's what he's, he's been giving uh, carte blanche to do. Uh, they are actually been uh, given McChrystal... Uh, this 18 months in order to deal with that situation and uh, to see how it comes out. But uh, I, I just think that, uh, you know, that they're already aware of the fact that their main tool, which is the military, uh, has been used up. And that should the United States continue to anger people around the world with their callous and unlawful actions, uh, regarding using their predator drones in, as an example, it's going to make this kind of reverse containment policy that they're that they're now aware of and fearing uh, a reality. And Paul, let me just uh, make sure I got that uh, uh, URL correct: strategicstudiesinstitute.mil.gov. It's dot army. Oh, dot army. www.strategicstudiesinstitute.army.mil, and it's the 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 title of the article is known 
unknowns. That's a Rumsfeld uh, <laughs> concoction. <laughs> Unconventional strategic shocks and defense strategy development by Nathan Freer, F-R-E-I-E-R. Okay. I would really recommend you check this out because it's a it's a profound uh, it's a profound document because it's very realistic and I've, I've I've noticed that from a lot of military people, military people are, are far more real about and uh, in, in, in candid uh, uh, about what's going on uh, in Afghanistan, what they see on the ground, than mm-hmm. the politicians are. Okay, so, I'll I'll put that link in the show information file so that people can click on it at my website and uh, it'll take you right to it. Now, uh, this is where I want to come back to the article that you and Elizabeth wrote uh, for a a bit of a lengthy quote here, because I think you really uh, have captured some important ideas. The efficacy of assassinating Taliban and al-Qaeda suspects with such weapons challenges at least two major assumptions. The first is that the weapons themselves are not technically a technically suitable replacement for human counterinsurgency forces, which uh, have their own problems. The second, and perhaps more important, is whether high-tech warfare, with its all-imperial death-from-above implications, isn't actually self-defeating, given the negative political impact it has on the local population. Critics of the predator attacks have warned of the potential blowback for years. And you quote from 04 Robert Pape, Associate Professor of Political Science, University of Chicago, in Foreign Affairs. Decapitating the enemy has a seductive logic. It exploits the United States' advantage in precision air power. It promises to win wars in just days, with few casualties among friendly forces and enemy civilians. And it delays committing large numbers of ground troops until they can be welcomed as liberators rather than conquerors. But decapitation strategies have never been effective and the advent of precision weaponry has not made, in, uh, made them any more so. Uh, I think this really sums up the, uh, 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 the, con- the conflict here between uh, ideas and reality, and also the kind of remoteness of the American people, that a drone strike, uh, since it doesn't put an American life on the line, is therefore a sanitized way to achieve military objectives. There's no question that there's a disconnect between <clears throat> the lives that we live here in the United States and what our government is doing overseas and what our military is doing overseas. And I mean, that's why we put the, the quote from, from uh, Sir Thomas More in there, from A Man for All Seasons, about, you know, when the devil, would you cut down all the trees in the forest to get to the devil? Yes, I would. Well, you know, would you cut down all the laws in the forest to get to the, uh, to the devil? Yes, I would. Well, when you, when you get rid of all the laws and the devil finally turns on you and he looks at you and says, okay, where are you going to hide? And that's what's going on right now. Where is the Obama administration, where is the United States going to hide? And that plays into that whole idea of the containment, of the containment policy being somehow reversed on us, on the United States. Uh, China and Russia... Uh, it got together and said, look, you know, uh, we're in a position to basically shut the United States out. The technology is relatively uh, available around the world at this point. We're looking at India as being an, on, as being an up-and-coming military uh, uh, potential giant. China, of course, Russia still has the technology, and we're not even talking necessarily nuclear technology. All you've got to do is we can see what's going on in the Gulf uh, 
of Mexico right now. All you've got to do is create a couple of disasters like that and uh, cut off the oil supply to the United States, and, and you've got big problems. You can create all kinds of supply problems here in the United States. We are an interconnected world. We have to deal with each other on a, on a civilized, lawful basis. Uh, there was a report that came out. There was a conference back in early 2009. And uh, it, was in, it was in Europe, I believe it was assembled at The Hague, and it was of, of international jurists. And they essentially got together and they begged the Obama administration to please uh, restore America's respect for international law. That, that the entire, uh, there were many commentaries by, by professionals um, who said that, you know, the United States is only stimulating uh, a more chaotic situation uh, and, and creating more potential for terrorists to rise up out of the earth against the United States. And they, they, they thought that this was a really good opportunity for the Obama administration to finally, you know, basically return the world to normal, or at least the normal that it had been before 9-11, before this berserk response to, uh, to 9-11 and the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan took place. And, of course, that hasn't happened. Uh, we're seeing a lot of potential things here. The predator drone strikes, of course, has, uh, have, have uh, accelerated. Uh, the Obama administration has been quoted as being more interested in killing than capturing. And as we know, uh, you know, capturing, uh, it, at least you can get information when you arrest somebody and, and interrogate them, uh, not necessarily torture them. Indeed. And, yep. uh, and that's, of course, you know, this has all been, you know, all of these things have been thrown out the window. And you have to say to yourself, why? Why is this happening? And, Paul, that leads to um, uh, this that I'd like to raise. In the April 19 edition of The Nation magazine, William R. Polk, who has been following Afghanistan actually a little longer than you, he made his first visit there in 1962, um, he offers uh, a perspective, and uh, to sum it up, he says that uh, the only way to move forward is with a U.S. withdrawal, that that's the only way it'll stabilize the central government in Kabul with or without Karzai, and that it's the only way that uh, the civilians in Afghanistan will move towards some sort of a, a common future, because as long as we are engaged in counterinsurgency, it empowers the Taliban to uh, threaten and uh, intimidate the local population, and it also uh, uh, puts into question the motive behind any kind of nation-building or community-building efforts that we undertake. And Polk points out that uh, essentially Afghanistan is just a, a conglomeration of villages and tribes, and that to imagine that, uh, using Dick Cheney's term, that we can stand up a central government and it would remain standing after we leave is fiction. And I think Polk is very persuasive in arguing that as the U.S. withdraws, it gives the best opportunity for some sort of, uh, of civil society and a durable governance to emerge. And as long as we, were there, we are there, it simply can't happen. Well, uh, I, I would disagree with the idea that there, there is a school of thought that, you know, has maintained over the years that, you know, Afghanistan really never had a centralized government, and since it never had a centralized Western-style government, that it never really was a nation. There really was a sense of nationhood there, and that rested with the, uh, the royal family, mm -hmm. uh, which, of course, would, the Bush administration made sure when the king returned that he could not act as head of state and could have no active part in the government. And that, from that day forward, it did become a, uh, you know, 
know, a, a just an, an assembly of, of different ethnic groups vying for control, which is what it is right now. And that's part of the reason why it is in such a disaster. I mean, the, the Pashtun tribes have been uh, are the majority, uh, the, the Pashtun group are the majority ethnic group in the country. And the United States is basically, by siding with the Northern Alliance, which are the Uzbeks and the Tajiks uh, uh, and the Turkmen, they have basically sided, the United States has signed on with the minority. And that has been, that's been kind of built in. That's the problem that's been built in from the very beginning. So you're, you're right the, about the fact that I don't think anything really can take place until the United States withdraws. Certainly not with Hamid Karzai there. Uh, this is a very similar situation to, uh, to what the United States faced in Vietnam with Nodindiem. And uh, as long as Nodindiem was never going to be, be seen as a, as a nationalist Vietnamese. And, uh, and Hamid Karzai apparently is, has I, I guess the polls, the good polls, predict that he only has about 24% uh, support of the population in the most important districts. So that's nowhere near enough for him to govern the country. And he's never really taken on an aggressive uh, position as, an, as a leader. He's definitely more trying to, trying to formulate some kind of almost tribal coalition government. Uh, but um, he cannot exist without the support of the United States. He won't exist for long. I don't think he would be in there for probably a day without the United States and, and uh, American security guarding him. So um, that is where we go. The problem is, is that there's also the possibility that Afghanistan would be torn to pieces when the Americans leave. This is almost like a fusion bomb. There is no question from the people that we talk with that, that the Indians, the Pakistanis, the Chinese, the Iranians, and the Russians all have a vested interest in seeing that, uh, that situation resolved to their advantage. And the fact is, is that the Chinese have already gone on the record as stating that they do, they do not want the American military engagement to continue, that it's only making things worse. So it would seem to me that what's going to have to happen is, is that you're going to have to get something like the... Um, uh, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the SCO, uh, which involves those those countries as well as some of the neighboring uh, former Soviet republics, Kyrgyzstan and uh, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, involved in this process and uh, and come to an agreement that whatever government the Afghan people decide that they want, uh, that they can have, and that it will not revert to civil war, and and that's. That's the biggest issue right now, and the problem there is is in Pakistan, as we know. If the if the Pakistani Taliban are uh, the Tariki Taliban are definitely not interested in allowing Afghanistan to set up a, a an independent secular state, and neither is the uh, uh, neither is the uh, Punjabi Pakistani military. That is definitely an issue in this, and that has to be dealt with. That has to be dealt with. That had to be dealt with originally, and it hasn't been. So, uh, how that gets resolved, I don't know. Uh, if China can impose upon uh, Pakistan to not interfere in the internal affairs of Afghanistan, that would be one thing. But the United States doesn't seem to have the ability or the will to want to do that. So I, I personally think that the entire issue rests with uh, Pakistan and Islamabad right now. And if the United States can somehow get Islamabad to, to, um, 
uh, ease its ease its constant attitude in warfare uh, towards uh, India, that would be go a long way towards alleviating the, the the conditions for war in Afghanistan. But I don't see Pakistan seems to be coming on pretty strong right now. General Kiani has made it quite clear that he's running the country and that uh, his interests are what have to come first, and Pakistan's interests have to come first, and whoever decides what goes on in Afghanistan. So I think we're I think we're personally I think we're in for it. I think there's going to be a, a parting of the ways uh, within the next uh, six to twelve months, and I think we're going to see some some earth-shaking events occur. Mm, very interesting, Paul. Uh, in closing, I wanted to get your comment on a recent article published by an independent journalist, Anand Gopal, and we interviewed him uh, on a recent podcast here. And he uh, profiles uh, Mullah Abdul Kayum Zakir and describes him as essentially the number two to Mullah Omar in the Afghan Taliban. He has an interesting past. He's a Pashtun from a fairly wealthy family, and he did a tour at Guantanamo Bay. We're going to talk about innocent detainees at Guantanamo coming up in the next segment. I don't know quite what to make of uh, Zakir, because he was released from uh, 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 Guantanamo by the Bush administration, repatriated to Afghanistan. And what I'm trying to figure out is whether he posed as an innocent individual, and they simply didn't have uh, any evidence to continue holding him, or uh, if he was radicalized by the experience of being held uh, indefinitely without charge, uh, and outside of the Geneva Conventions and uh, other international law. So uh, to the extent you know about Zakir, uh, what is your take on him, and did we actually create uh, the monster that he appears to be today uh, through our misguided policies of uh, detention and uh, torture? Well, we have a long history of creating people like that. Gulbuddin um, <clears throat> Hekmatyar is an example. It was a very good, you know, he was he was supported by the United States going back to 1973, and uh, of course he's still he's still on the ticket. They're still talking. They're still talking to Gulbuddin Hekmatyar and his Hezbi Islami political party right. in terms of bringing them into the government. Uh, in fact, we were actually contacted by Gulbuddin Hekmatyar's person when we wrote a piece on boiling frogs, uh, uh, criticizing us for criticizing Gulbuddin Hekmatyar. Really? Can you, yes. Can you imagine that? <laughs> This is back in January. Yeah, we we wrote a piece and we got an, we got an email from uh, his representative in Los Angeles. Now, now mind you, the Gobidin Hekmatyar is, is is labeled, branded a terrorist by the State Department and by the Treasury Department, and. Um, and, uh, and they're not supposed to have any kind of representation. They're not supposed to be able to do anything. And here he is basically uh, threatening us from Los Angeles about his writing nasty things about his boss. So, you know, uh, you know in terms of Zakir, uh, there's a lot of individuals who have been involved in this process. There's a lot of wheeling and dealing going on behind the scenes that we'll probably never know about. And I think that uh, what's going to happen at this point is, is that there, I, I think the, the key to whether the, this thing gets resolved or not is going to be who inside the Washington bureaucracy wins out. We have had this, as I mentioned to you earlier in the program, this, this whole, we've been following in terms of policy, a program of containment that goes back to McKinder's policies back in the 19, late 19th century with Britain, which we picked up in the, uh, right after World War II and have been following along with. So the question is, is that the problem at this point is the objective of that policy was to take control of South Central Asia. 
Now, apparently, I mean, the backing guys like Gobi and Hekmatyar in the early 70s and through the 1980s, then helping to develop the Taliban in the 1990s and backing them, all seems to play into that as part of the program. Uh, backing radical Islam in order to, to basically conquer um, South Central Asia, take it away from Soviet influence, take it away from Chinese influence. The United States is still supporting uh, Uyghur independence groups, as an example, against Chinese interests and to the consternation of the Chinese government. So uh, we, we do, the United States does maintain these kind of connections with these radical, uh, these radical uh, extremists, Islamic extremists. So uh, if that can be the case, now I remember at one point there was, um, there was an American official who stated that, uh, you know, imposing some kind of government on Afghanistan that would be very similar, like to the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia, uh, would be just fine. That would be exactly what they wanted. Now, that, of course, has nothing to do with what the Afghan people want. That's what the international uh, conglomerates want. That's what the international cartels and <clears throat> oil business wants. They want to be able to put pipelines. They don't want to have to worry about uh, independent governments. They don't want to have to worry about an, an Afghan government or a Pakistani government that's going to demand oil revenues. They don't want to have to deal with a Venezuela-type situation. And so as a result of that, I think we're going to see that um, a, a spread of Islamism. But the fact is, is that who's going to be behind it? And is it going to be tacitly supported? I know McChrystal has stated outright that, that the Taliban need to be negotiated with, uh, and that Karzai has said the same thing, need, need, need to be negotiated with. The only difference between Karzai and McChrystal in terms of the negotiation is what level of the, what level of the extremists do you bring into the government? Karzai wants to open the doors to the government right now and bring in Gulbuddin Hakmatyar as a, and give him a position in in the state of Afghanistan, as well as open the door to uh, Mullah Omar and bring him in and let him have a position in the government. So I, I mean, there is some thinking that 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 giving these people uh, these radical parties a political position would sort of de-emphasize their 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 um, need to be violent and to use uh, weapons in order to, uh, to get what they want. But the whole purpose of the Taliban is to completely flip over uh, South Central Asia into being in a, a, a basically a caliphate or, or an emirate, uh, turning it over to being a, a new version of Khorasan to having this Islamic empire that stretches from Saudi Arabia to into uh, Eastern Europe. I mean, you know, so if that is what's behind this, I mean, we're in for, as I said before, I think we're in for a lot of uh, surprises in the next, uh, in, the, in, the, in the oncoming years. Well, Paul, thank you for your time today. I always learn a lot talking with you. I really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate your contributions there at Boiling Frogs and uh, also to the, uh, the discussion of these important issues. Paul, thank you very much. Well, thank you. We continue on the Peter B. Collins Show. We're sponsored by the Organic Wine Company. Did you hear the news? There's a new Peter B. Collins Organic Wine Club. Get the details at peterbcollins.com or go to theorganicwinecompany.com.
On this program, we've provided in-depth coverage of the plight of those held at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, and other points in the American Gulag. It is a travesty and a disgrace to Americans and our history that uh, we continue to incarcerate people with uh, euphemistic names like enemy combatants, and we call them detainees. But there remain uh, over 150 men at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Over half of those are citizens of the nation of Yemen, and most have been cleared for release, but due to the politics of the situation, and frankly, the cowardice of the Obama administration in the face of resistance from Democratic and Republican lawmakers, they're now left in limbo. And we've covered this in great detail with our go-to guy, Andy Worthington, the British journalist who published uh, the in-depth book about Guantanamo and continues to write on the web at andyworthington.co.uk. And I just learned that Andy is a member of the board of No More Guantanamos. This is a nonprofit based in Massachusetts, and its director, Nancy Tulanian, joins us right now. Nancy, welcome to the Peter B. Collins Show. Thank you, Peter. Good to be with you. First, let's talk about what a great guy Andy Worthington is and how sad it is that there is not an equivalent American journalist who's committed to exposing the truth about Guantanamo Bay and the other detention centers. Uh, yeah, Andy's shared a lot of great stories, as have the, the lawyers, not the journalists so much. Um, so we're hoping that through these stories we can get to the American people and get the truth out there. Well, and your group has been active in an interesting way because you uh, essentially have ad- uh, uh, agreed to adopt or welcome into your communities uh, people released from Guantanamo, and we're going to get specific about that in a moment. But how do you, since you're willing to do that, how do you respond to those, particularly our elected leaders, who uh, propagandize this issue in such a divisive way and say, we can't allow anybody from Guantanamo to set foot on American soil, even if they are shackled and housed in a maximum security prison? Um, Yeah, there are a lot of interesting opinions in Congress, to say the least, and uh, among the American public, frankly, after eight years of the lies about these men. On the one hand, we have an administration that's um, telling other countries to take in these men. They'd be perfectly safe in their countries, so it uh, makes no sense that they wouldn't be safe if they were brought here. And we even have the Bush administration having released 530 600 have been released already, including the ones by the Obama administration. So mm-hmm. so we need to expose that. Well, and even in cases like the Uyghurs, who are an oppressed religious minority in China, uh, you know, whose release into the United States uh, presumably would not put anyone at risk, uh, we've had to send them to Bermuda, to islands in the Pacific, um, and this this just speaks to the sad state of uh, a sense of morality and true justice among the American people. Absolutely, and what I find interesting is most, the most of the Uyghurs who've been released have gone to Palau. The population of Palau is smaller than the population of Amherst, Massachusetts, which is one of the two communities that has offered to accept a few detainees. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk specifically about uh, two individuals. First, Ravil Mingazov, who is a Russian national, 
Tell us a little bit about his story and how the heck did he wind up at Guantanamo Bay? Um, his story is similar to most of the men there and how he got uh, put there by mistake. He was fleeing religious repression in Russia. He was actually in the Russian army where he'd done such good work on a, um, a feeding program, food distribution program that they had in the army that his picture was on bulletin boards and his general presented him with a watch. But when he became a Muslim, uh, that was problematic. The Muslims were persecuted, and so he tried to talk to his superiors, and uh, things got worse and worse by uh, trying to get rights for the Muslim soldiers. So eventually he he decided after the KGB uh, searched his uh, house, ransacked it actually, and he had a, a baby son and a wife, that uh, he'd better go out and the world and find a safe place where his family could live. Mm-hmm. And he was uh, in Afghanistan and then in uh, Pakistan in a home for uh, refugees, uh, and the entire house was rounded up on the pretext by the Pakistani police that uh, someone in that house had some relationship to Abu Ubaida. And so he's been in Guantanamo ever since. Actually, seven other Russian soldiers were released from Guantanamo in 2004, and Human Rights Watch did a study of what happened to them. And they were all detained, tortured, beaten, uh, jailed, uh, one or all of the above, and one of the men was killed. So Rafael Mengazov did not want to go back to Russia. Mm-hmm. And uh, at what point was he declared not a terrorist threat to be uh, essentially innocent of any cause for his continuing detention. How far back does that go? That goes yesterday. To, he's never been charged with anything, but he had to wait eight years for his habeas corpus petition to be heard because of all the delays by Congress. Finally, in 2008, uh, the Boumediene case uh, mm-hmm. was decided by the Supreme Court, and so it's taken a long time for these these cases to work their way through the um U.S. Uh, District Court, and um, so he, the judge, Judge Kennedy, decided yesterday that uh, the government has to release him because they don't have enough evidence to to hold him. There's mm-hmm. no evidence that he is an enemy combatant or any anyone who poses a danger to the U.S. or any ally. And is the Obama Justice Department accepting this court ruling, or are they going to appeal it? Uh, we haven't heard whether they're going to appeal. I guess they, I don't know if they've actually appealed any. They just don't let people go. Most, mostly they do. They would have to find another country for him to go to since he can't uh, go back to Russia, mm-hmm. which is a problem. And he would be about the 12th person currently there who has not been released by the Obama administration but has been ordered released by a federal judge. And how long uh, after these rulings are people continuing to be held? What, what's the, I mean, Obama's only been in office for a year and, and four months now, uh, but uh, have people whose habeas rulings ordered them released been held uh, even, you know, for a year, say? I don't know exactly. Uh, I'm sure they're all different, um, but... There are some people, uh, Algerians, who uh, haven't been sent anywhere but Algeria, and there are a couple there who don't want to go back to Algeria. They haven't necessarily been cleared by habeas corpus, but, for example, in the case of the other detainee that Amherst and Leverett are willing to take, Ahmed Belbacha, he's been released. He's been cleared for release 
2007 by the Bush administration. Wow. It's been more than three years, but he's still there because they won't find him any other place to go. And um, think of it um, the way the other countries do, that, uh, okay, the U.S. created Guantanamo and expects us to do all the heavy lifting, taking in all these people when they're not willing to take a single one. Now, tell us about uh, Belbacha, the Algerian. What was uh, the reason that he was caught up in our uh, detention system? um, His case is right along the lines of almost all of them. He was uh, one of the people who was sold to the U.S. military for a bounty of $5,000. And I believe that's about 85% of the cases. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was in Pakistan by probably poor villagers who wanted to make some extra bucks and figured the Americans, once they handed off the money, would figure out very quickly that they had the wrong guy. This may be a little bit sick, but uh, going back to the Clinton era and the Lewinsky scandal, James Carville famously said, you never know what you'll get if you drag a $100 bill through a trailer park. And to just build on that ugly metaphor... Uh, we know what we get for dragging a $5,000 bounty through remote villages in Pakistan and Afghanistan, and it's uh, over 600 people who wound up at Guantanamo who were no threat whatsoever to the United States or its allies. Absolutely. And should have known better, I would say, but that's, that's another story. Yeah. Now, uh, the towns of Amherst and Leverett have passed resolutions offering a home to these two individuals. How, how were they selected from the uh, remaining population at uh, Guantanamo? And on what basis did you persuade uh, the members of your town councils or your town meetings uh, that this was a prudent move to make? Well, actually, we've selected a list. The national part of No More Guantanamo has had a list of detainees with compelling stories, and different communities across the country have been telling their stories via media, et cetera. And the stories are so compelling that we had one person in the Pioneer Valley come forward immediately and say, well, I'd like to introduce a resolution to to get rid of this ban on allowing these men here uh, and to uh, ask that our community welcome these people. And, uh, and actually it passed overwhelmingly in Amherst, and so a second person used the same resolution fairly recently last month and got a resolution passed in Leverett. Mm -hmm. And is there any pushback? Uh, You have a local right-wing radio station that is, uh, you know, pounding the the issue and trying to generate fear over this possibility? Uh, Not locally, but uh, someone with a program, uh, right-wing talk radio show in Boston did. So when Amherst, it was funny, when Amherst was working on the resolution, and the select board was for it, and the town meeting was coming up. Uh, The town offices were flooded with calls and emails from people threatening not to send their children to to University of Massachusetts at Amherst or Amherst College. Was this this Howie Ka? No, it was a woman, (laughs) Michelle, I don't remember her last name. Okay. Anyway, she was trying to turn people against us, and one of the select board members had been on her show and said, well... Uh, don't you believe people should be considered uh, innocent until proven guilty? And she said, yes, if they're American citizens, but not anybody else. Yeah. 
Well, these are these are troubling times, and uh, I just have to say, Nancy, that I really appreciate the work that you and other members of No No More Guantanamos uh, have been doing, because uh, it, it's a tough current that you're swimming against. Uh, I, I remember I was at a cocktail reception about a year ago when uh, the Uyghurs were sent to Bermuda. And this woman, who appeared to be highly ignorant, is the best, the most generous description I can offer, said, well, gosh, I wish they'd send me to Bermuda. And I said, well, would you like to be held at Guantanamo for six or seven years, subject to torture, uh, held indefinitely without charge, and have your, your civil rights uh, violated in that manner? And she just looked at me like, uh, you know, I was talking gibberish. And uh, I just take that as an example of people whose only knowledge base comes from the corporate media, and they believe what they're told, that de facto, if you've been sent to Guantanamo, you are the worst of the worst of, of humankind, and that you barely deserve to be allowed to live. And so this mentality that has been uh, echoed by the corporate media in this country is is so uh, toxic and uh, really so tragic. And we've seen that President Obama, who I do believe wanted to close Guantanamo, has had to basically just uh, push that way back and hope that there'll be some opportunity down the road where he can slip past these... uh, uh, self-righteous gatekeepers, and I I hasten to add that many of them are Democrats. Yes, well, in an election year, uh, people are very protective, and uh, they'll not take any chances by sticking their necks out on behalf of people who are held unlawfully uh, and pose no danger. Uh, They're just not going to take that chance. But you brought up um, an important uh, underlying factor for performing the No More Guantanamos as a national organization first, and we hope that other other people will work in their communities and kind of adopt some of these people, not necessarily to take them in. Some of them can actually go to their home countries, but at least to tell their stories, because even though the American people right now are very fearful of who these people are, it's due to eight years of lies and fear-mongering that they've they've heard. But once they know the real stories and they see people as human beings, that changes. They're really quite compassionate. Um, That's why I think the Bush administration kept the men's uh, identities and stories a secret, has kept them away from people, uh, from us and from their own families, and has tried to assure us that they're very well treated and very well fed so that people wouldn't worry about them. But once you tell their stories and what's really happening, then then maybe they'll they'll want to do something, do yeah. the right thing. Well, I want to recommend your website, uh, nogitmos.org, nogitmos.org. And uh, let's spend a minute here because uh, I got uh, the same release that you have uh, up on the homepage here today from the Center for Constitutional Rights uh, just yesterday. And it shows that uh, this is not limited to uh, the, 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 the weakness of the Obama administration on these issues is not limited to pushback from members of Congress because we have the case of Maher Arar, the Canadian national, who was, uh, he, he got an incredible, uh, ugly ride courtesy of the United States. He was rendered to a third country. He was tortured. And ultimately he was released 
when the U.S. acknowledged a, a case of mistaken identity, uh, but he was tortured in Syria, and uh, he has been repeatedly blocked in his efforts uh, to win some sort of vindication from the U.S. government through our courts. And uh, just on May 13th, Obama administration sides with Bush Justice Department and asks the Supreme Court to keep Canadian rendition victim Maher Arar from having a day in court. And this this is uh, un-American, and uh, it, it's a real insult. To, uh, I take it personally as someone who believes in our Constitution and who believes that uh, people have a right uh, to redress crimes of the state against individuals. And yet we see the Obama Justice Department uh, extending the bad legal precedents that were set under Bush, and uh, they do so with very little public criticism. It, it really troubles me, Nancy. Absolutely. The state secrets privilege has been abused for, for the last eight years, basically. Anytime someone who's been tortured wants to sue the United States government for their mistreatment, uh, they, they claim state secrets, and, uh, of course, with the Military Commissions Act, nobody who was involved in torturing anyone can be um, prosecuted for, for that torture. Um, so, yeah, um, this is a very bad time that we're in. Uh, we've set a very poor example in our own country and around the world for, for how to treat people and for what, um, what we call justice. Uh, bringing people to justice. Actually, one of our um, local chapters in North Carolina uh, has been working very hard on rendition, the rendition flights uh, that have been coming through an airport near them, kind of inspired them to, to take this on. And Mahar Arar and Khaled Al-Masri are uh, two very uh, important examples of uh, the abuses that have been suffered by uh, victims of rendition. Yeah. I remember when uh, Al-Masri surfaced at the very time that Condoleezza Rice was making a tour of Europe to uh, try to persuade people that the U.S. was not involved in torture. And uh, he surfaced, I believe, when uh, she was in Germany and uh, presented his case. And it, it was just such a clear contradiction. Yet the American media could not bring itself to say, well, you know, Condoleezza, you're lying. And so those representations, misrepresentations, were echoed in the American media. And uh, uh, we still have uh, these two individuals who have been denied uh, any redress or even the satisfaction of having their full stories and accounts uh, told and validated. Absolutely. It's very hard to get our government to admit mistakes. And that's another reason why the American people have to uh, become aware of what really has been going on and insist that the government come clean and do the right thing to people who have been abused. There's also the case of um, some of the Englishmen who were held in Guantanamo for years who've also sued for the torture that they experienced there and at other prisons, and their cases have all been thrown out as well. Well, and in, in the case of Binyan Mohammed, it's, it's uh, fascinating and chilling at the same time, because here in San Francisco, our uh, dangerously liberal uh, Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which, by the way, is much less liberal than it was before Bush packed it with people like Jay Bybee, uh, they ruled against 
uh, Binyan Muhammad and uh, embraced the government's argument of state secrets when so much of the information was already out in the open, as if uh, they can just uh, put that toothpaste back in the tube, seal it up, and say it never happened. And again, uh, the Obama administration uh, extended these bad legal precedents, and the justices on the Court of Appeals here were uh, asking the government lawyers, well, gosh, is this the Obama position? Because this is exactly the same as the Bush position. And they were told, oh, yes, this was vetted at the very top. And that's, that's extremely troubling. Then we saw the Obama administration intervene with the British government and threaten them with, uh, oh, things like we won't cooperate on uh, uh, exchange of, of intelligence information if you permit Binyam Muhammad to uh, pursue his case in Britain. And ultimately, a courageous judge in Britain uh, ruled uh, against, uh, it ruled in favor of Mohammed and against the U.S. and British governments on that matter. Absolutely. I was just going to say the same thing uh, myself. But yes, that's, that's shocking that not only can we not have any truth in this country, but we're going to prevent every other country uh, from telling the truth about what happened. And um, we expect them to help clean up our mess at the same time. It's kind of an extraordinary position. It, it really is. Kafka would be reeling. Well, Nancy Tulanian, it's a real pleasure to talk with you. Thank you again for the work that you're doing. I want people to go to nogitmos.org and uh, stay in touch with the work that you're doing. Thank you very much. And uh, give my best to your, uh, your residents there in the towns of Amherst and Leverett. They're setting a great example for the rest of the nation. Great. I hope others will follow soon. Thank, Thank you, Nancy. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Peter B. Collins Show. Your comments are welcome. Email peter at peterbcollins.com. Happy trails to you until we meet again. Happy trails to you. Keep smiling.